Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Ethereum is built by code, but it's composed by people, and each individual member of the Ethereum community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people they use it. And Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. I'm David Hoffman, and today we are talking with Eric Connor. Eric Connor is uh, what I have been calling the unofficial community manager of Ethereum. Uh, he, I, the metaphor I like to use is that he was uh, stoking the fire during the 2018-19-20 bear market, keeping the fire warm for all of us, uh, while we all kind of coped with having uh, absolutely no interesting price action at all. While Meanwhile, the uh, innovation and development behind Ethereum and what, what was going on in the early, early stages of DeFi was absolutely insane. And Eric was one of those people who has uh, helped everyone, I think, understand that, no, we're not crazy. Everything that's happening here is insanely awesome and cool. And just because the prices don't reflect that doesn't mean that it's not awesome and cool. Eric has gone in and out of being a prominent uh, crypto Twitter individual. As soon as the, the bull market came on, he started to kind of take a step back. And now he's kind of graduated into more or less just a shit posting position. Uh, and I actually kind of find his journey in relationship to Ethereum pretty interesting. Uh, as we all know, Ethereum is very, as an ecosystem, is very dominating, very overwhelming. Uh, and Eric has gone through the whole entire stages of like, you know, early stage interest in Ethereum, deep diving all the way into it, getting overwhelmed, having a bull market come, taking a step back and, and learning how to really um, walk the line of, of like Ethereum life balance where you can actually live a life that is actually not completely defined by like being an Ethereum or crypto Twitter person. Um, Eric has always been a, a mentor to me in, in learning how to navigate the space and some of the insights and just, you know, things that he says I always, I always find are, are more and more true as time goes on. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Connor. But first, before we get there, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what you are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to Arbitrum Layer 2. To get up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. 
Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Hey, Eric. How's it going? Hey, David. Good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. You are uh, guest number two on Layer Zero. Nice. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this new format you were telling me about. It sounds like mm -hmm. a nice little change up. I feel like in the podcast space, like we were just talking about this before recording, but stuff gets a little like not scripted, but like you kind of hear the same questions and formats over and over. So just kind of a freestyle is, is my vibe these days. Yeah. And, and, and freestyling is definitely something like missing in crypto because like there's so many projects to talk about and some people like explain the, the rationale behind their projects in really like awesome ways. But to me, that makes me think of like, OK, why is this person like so good at a coming up with a project and then b explaining it like that? That tells me there's like a little bit more behind the scenes of, of what's going on there. Yeah, totally. No, I know. There's so many like, I mean, in cryptos in general, it's funny, right? Like, I feel like going beyond just the typical like interviews and talks is when you get into the more interesting conversations, like mm -hmm. doing into the ether when I would do guest episodes, the best stuff always happened after the mics got turned off. And it's not every time, like, dude, <laughs> it's not because people are like scared to say stuff either. It's just like when you just I don't know when there's just free flow conversation with no one's looking at questions and stuff. I feel like people just say, and it's not like they're saying stuff mm -hmm. they wouldn't have wanted to say on mic. It's just like a more natural right. conversation. I mean, it's definitely like a little bit of that, right? It's like, all right, now that we're stopping, stopping recording, I can like take the persona off and I can like, like kind of speak a little bit more freely, a little bit more, uh, like I don't, I don't have to consider like lawyers or anything. Um, yeah. but then also to some degree, like, it's just like you bring up all the things that you forgot to talk about while you were on the actual recording right and then that's like like you said like the super interesting stuff uh i mean it, it's it's terrible practice and you know i would never actually do this but like i always wanted to like just leave the recording actually going it's like all right we're done now right. but i'm gonna leave it i'm gonna still record though <laughs> yeah then like release like blooper clips as like one big people would not be too happy about that i'm sure no but, no yeah. not, not at all not at all yeah. uh so i kind of want to start this uh this conversation and then actually work backwards from it with um, Ether Delta. Tell us, tell us about Ether Delta and what it was like to trade on Ether Delta. Yeah, man. Wow. That's a huge throwback. Yeah. I guess most people listening probably know at this point, I, I got into this, the Ethereum scene because I had was like an IRC trading channels, man. It's funny to even think of back like IRC. Now we're on discord so much more. I actually don't even know what IRC is. I never it's got that like, experience. It was like, yeah, it's like the original, like totally it, you didn't miss much. Like it was kind of like, um, where people that 
anonymous wanted to go and kind of hide and like it wasn't being tracked and stuff but just total shitty just like text channels right and but that's where like a lot of bitcoin traders hung out in the early days and i had some friends that got owned in the gox hack and that led us to say okay what are we doing here we've got this technology potential why are we trading these decentralized assets why are we hiding in irc channels and all this <laughs> stuff when we're just trading on centralized exchanges and that sent me down, like around that exact time um, was when Vitalik pitched Ethereum at uh, Bitcoin Miami and everything just kind of clicked. So long story short, we, we three of us, um, a couple of friends I got owned by Gox and myself who didn't get owned by Gox, luckily, um, set out to build EtherX, which was a way too early attempt at building a decentralized exchange. Um, but funny enough, that ended up one of the people, he wasn't like a direct team member at the time, but he was in like our um, Slack channel. He went on to build Ether Delta. Um, and man, like that feels like a totally different universe at this point, right? Like you had to literally go, like people are so spoiled now by AMMs, right? Where you go on, you just trade and matching happens. And even like if you're using like matcha or one inch, like all this stuff just happens easily and you get matched. On Ether Delta, you literally had to go like click the specific order to get matched. Um, mm -hmm. And it was so shady. You had right. To there was, there like, was no market buys, right? Like you correct. couldn't just market buy. You had to actually pay, select an order out yeah. of the. And you could, if, if you were not paying attention, you could in theory like select a, a less optimal order than right. what was best offered. And sometimes you would actually have to if your trade was larger than the, like the actual best offer, but your trade was so large, like it just wouldn't matter and you didn't want to go through all the steps. You'd actually have to take it, go down the list. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was brutal. And it's funny because like, anybody could list a token which you know that created chaos too. And you could plug in like addresses, but like if you think back, right? Like it's funny how sophisticated that actually was. It was just like the user experience was horrible. We hadn't quite mm -hmm. figured out the user experience, but like in a way that's kind of how, like Uniswap, you just plug in an address and it pulls up the right. token, right? It's just, it was done differently. There was too much information on one screen. So like you knew, you knew something was there, um, but you weren't sure like how long it was gonna take to become mainstream. And I would say it happened a lot faster than I actually thought it would. I, I've kind of always back then probably would have said, ah, oh, 10 years down the road, mainstream might be using DEXs. And then all of a sudden, you know, mm -hmm. what, two years later, people, Uniswap came along and stuff like that. It's crazy how fast it actually moved. That's def definitely been like the pattern that I've noticed is like, all right, we have this ether delta thing like it's a great proof of, of concept it's obviously broken and then you don't see any progress for a really long time and you get a little bit disillusioned you get a little bit frustrated you're like all right what is this thing that we are actually doing here and then all of a sudden boom there's uniswap and then like just a few short months later we've solved all those problems like all at once right like it's like there's nothing happens you get frustrated and then boom the solution happens and then it's just like a, a step order function and like the way this stuff works it's crazy and i guess it's because of all the geniuses in this space i think i mean my investment thesis for eth has always been like the smartest people i know are essentially all in ethereum like the smartest people i've run across in my life i mean Obviously, there's some outside of the space, but like in general, the the, mo the more amount of smart people I know are in the Ethereum space. And like, that's always been my investment thesis. And I think that's why things happen faster. And also, like, we've totally cut out like the corporate bureaucracy crap too. And like even coming down to like creating products, right? Like I have a background in product management. Before that it was finance. And like things just take longer to build in the traditional space. Cause you have like managers and you've got these like silos and you're going through like these 
old outdated processes right and i feel like now people are like let's just get a small team together and build this and we'll figure out funding later and a lot of that has to do i think with these teams know they can launch a token or easily raise money later right and i think that allows people to fearlessly build things um and that's kind of i believe why things seem to move so fast in this space yeah, that, that is a good point that I don't think I've thought of before. One of the magic things about tokens is like they're easy to issue, they're permissionless to issue, so they're always a tool for every single team. But like people can like quote unquote like go public and get liquidity way faster in the Ethereum world than they ever could in, in the traditional world, right? You would have to go like seed round after seed round after seed round just to stay alive. Uh, and like now we're seeing like things and projects develop with just like one or two seed rounds and then token. And then like they, at that point, they have all the money that they could ever ask for, that they would ever need. Yeah, totally. It's interesting, right? And like you're putting that risk more on just random speculators, which back in like the i guess in the 17 ico days that wasn't ideal because people sure. there were a lot of promises made and like the icos happened and teams disappeared but now like you just said we, we kind of are getting the product first at least like I, I don't i can't remember a team in the last like two years that launched a token really before a product like maybe a few scammy ones but nothing like legit right and i think that's been the big shift i mean tying this all the way back to like ether delta right that was the first time we were like, oh man, these tokens, like tokens have been talked about in the white paper and theorized on Reddit and all of this. But that was the first time we were like, wow, I can get like instant liquidity for anything I create. And that, that was a huge breakthrough that Ethereum created. And I think got lost in a lot of the 17 ICO FUD was, it wasn't like about scammy ICOs. It was about anybody in the world being able to fundraise at a click of right. a button. Like, and right. that's, that's insanely powerful. Um, and now at least we're seeing products be built before you launch like a government government's token and that gives speculators a little more meat to work with right and i think right. it's less risky yeah they're taking on risk that the team disappears and the token doesn't do well but that's a way better model that we're at now right. than back in the ether delta days there's probably a like a connection between the how powerful the concept of early liquidity and token liquidity that we were just talking about mm -hmm. and the magnitude of like the ico craze like early liquidity is such mm -hmm. a powerful mm -hmm. concept that it accidentally created the ICO mania because like it, we got just like over our ski tips like way too soon. Yeah. Uh, and so like there's a connection there. Like the ICO mania was so incredibly massive because this tool of early liquidity is so incredibly powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like we saw people just totally FOMO into that. And it's funny, the other the flip side of that is not only could anybody raise liquidity, anybody could get into early startups, mm -hmm. right? And that's something that I think people underappreciate as well. And like I think regulators are most scared of that, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, I think when the SEC claims they're trying to protect investors, really they want to have a say on like who, they want the gates of entry, right? right? Controlled right. of who can get into these things. And traditionally it's just been accredited investors, which are people that are already well off and wealthy that can get into seed rounds and series A and early equity investments, right? And that this is a huge paradigm shift. So I think on one side you saw these teams say, oh wow, we can raise money instantly, let's do it. And on the flip side, it was like a perfect boil point right on the other side it's like oh wow for the first time ever i could try to be an early investor in a project and those two concepts are not going anywhere and i think oddly enough we're kind of self-regulating pretty well as an ethereum community um i think 
it pretty quickly on Twitter. Like if something seems scammy, like it's called out, um, you know, some people are going to get burnt, of course, like we, we're going to go through booms and busts, but, um, I think we're doing a pretty good job as a community and realizing, you know, these models, I think we're at a good point now where it's like, at least like we were just saying, you have a product and then you do it, but it'll be interesting to see like, is the SEC, our regulators going to try to really crack down on this? Like Anthony and I were just talking last week. I mean, Poloniex got fined, but it was only like $10 million. And it's like, how big is the SEC's bite really, right? Like Poloniex has made way more money than that. And that was their fine. We saw that with EOS too. So I think that's going to be an interesting narrative to watch going forward. Totally. Uh, here's something I want, I want to get your perspective on. And, and this is something that Ryan and I talk about on like the weekly rollups all the time where we talk about like the, the SEC regulators preventing like IMX and like uh, the other like token airdrops from going to U.S. citizens. And like it's all under the guise of like, yeah, we're protecting investors. But like in this format, they're definitely not because all they're doing is protecting investors from airdrops. And like the one of the th- cool things we've unlocked with early liquidity is, you know, putting like like potential 1000x opportunities into the hands of individuals so like there's two rationales that like could come out Mm -hmm. of this one is that like the uh tax reporting requirements gets a lot hairier when like it moves from just like you know small funds and and uh, accredited investors and there's only like a handful of those that invest right like for an if for the first like seed round or angel round like it's just like maybe 50 different entities right but then when we do in like an ICO that moves into like 5,000 plus individuals. And so from like a tax collecting and reporting perspective, it's just like two multiple orders of magnitude more hairy to make sure that all the citizenry is reporting the taxes that they are uh, obligated to report. So there's one perspective. The other perspective is that all this regulation is just like done by incumbents to gatekeep so that they can have all the exposure for themselves. And so, like, you know, if only 50 entities are getting into an early you know, investment opportunity, it's more likely that, you know, they are the incumbents are one of them and they can keep all the, the you know, the small fries from having these massive upside opportunities from early stage startups. And so that's the other perspective. I'm sure it's a little bit of both true, but like, which do you think is more true? Yeah, I, I agree that it's a little bit of both. I, I think there's the, so I, I if I had to pick one, I would agree most with the first um, because I do think government irs are definitely feeling overwhelmed with tax reporting and how to even handle this right like i i don't even know like honestly if someone tried to look at my transactions from 2020 i can barely figure them out enough to report them right like individuals can't figure it out how is how is the irs gonna do it for everyone right exactly (laughs) and like the reporting rules are still not quite there i think we're years away from those being really clear so i do think it's it's that right there right now like you said a lot of wealth is concentrated in a few entities a few people and it's easy to audit them and look at those returns right and that's where a lot of the money's being made so that's where a lot of the taxes are coming from now that wealth is spread out more. I, I believe crypto is really kind of spreading wealth out to a newer, younger generation and amongst more people. Um, yeah, if they can't track that, they're going to be worried because they're potentially losing out more if people aren't reporting them correctly, right? Um, I also think there's a perspective too where in general, like within regulators and within the government, there's a power game as well. And I think some of these some of these entities need to stay relevant and they're like crypto is the thing coming down the pipeline, right? And they're all trying to become the agency that regulates crypto, right? Because that gets them more funding, more bodies, more power. Um, But yeah, I don't know how, I mean, they have to be scared, right? Not scared because 
it's scary because it's overwhelming to them. It's new. And some of this stuff is just really, really hard to trace. There's, there's software out there, but like, you know, LP positions and how that's treated and all this stuff. Um, I mean, I think if ever they're 20 years away from being able to properly understand this. So they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shit, where I was going to go with this. To, to some degree, that's like the think of the people behind behind the, the with the responsibility of like figuring out all this stuff. Like I said, we can't figure it out. It's going to have to be some sort of like automated thing, like something like chain analysis or some like government like automation of just because we can read the blockchain. Like it's going to have to be like an input input your addresses receive a number type of thing. And like maybe you can make arguments about like how the calculations were done wrong, but like there's so much like, and, and plus like people, I play with my ledger all the time. It's like, oh, I like, sometimes I'll wake up and I'll make 50 transactions in a day for some fucking reason. I don't know why. Um, and like all of a sudden there's 50 transactions that I have to like log in report. And like, again, for the individual, if the individuals are overwhelmed, there's no way that like the, the IRS isn't going to get overwhelmed. It's, it's, and, and it's also the perfect substrate to automate, right? It's literally a blockchain with all the transactions. It has to be an automated thing. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the way forward. And I think really what it's exposing is how ancient and outdated the tax laws are in general, right? So I think what we might see is agencies just being too overwhelmed and that leading to simplification of tax laws. So what might that look like? I know some countries have basically just like a fiat in fiat out policy where it's like just net gain or loss on your fiat and you pay tax. Yes, that, just right? make it that simple. It's just like that. Well, the, the problem is that then that incentivizes never actually going back out to fiat, which is like definitely right. something that I preach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the bankless model, right? But like something <laughs> like this, right? To get things more, a flat tax, for example, and not all these different tax. But like Ethereum DeFi has become too complicated for the tax laws, like how you handle AMMs. Some, you know, like I report them one way. I know some people report it a different way. Other countries right. treat it like they need to just come up to the times. And I think, I hope this is going to result in simplification. Like I don't mind paying my taxes, but the, the huge bitch of it is trying to figure this all out and logging I do, yeah, 7,000 transactions right. and all that. I, I do mind spending like 40 hours a month of my life, like trying to actually do it right. Exactly. Um, you, you, you talked about how like these different agencies are trying to like all jostle p to, for position to try and like be the agency that regulates, uh, regulates crypto. And this is something that like, well, while generally most all, Bit all Bitcoin maxis and most Bitcoiners are, are pretty naive, sometimes the stories that they tell and the narratives that they weave are like super accurate. Uh, and maybe, maybe this is uh, Bitcoiners don't have a monopoly on this narrative, but like the state is an organization and like all organizations everywhere have a incentive to grow larger right and so like there's like their cftc sec the treasury they all have their incentives to, to grow their funding and grow their influence and power just because they're by the nature of a very organization right and so like no and, and so this is always why bitcoiners are so like anti-state is because they all like see the logical conclusion that like some sort of like three or four letter agency out of the government is going to want to capture our industry uh, and so what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you yeah, think about that? I mean, I agree. I definitely agree with any organization is going to try to get bigger and over time become, get more barnacles and become mm -hmm. less efficient. Right. And I think like you see that in this infrastructure bill, right? Like it's supposed to be an infrastructure bill, but then there's all these amendments and tack ons and the crypto laws are in there. And like, to me, it's just become 
inefficient, I would say. And I, I definitely am worried. I don't know where the, what the fix is going to be. I personally, like, for, if I had to vote on something, I'd probably say, like, term limits just to kind of keep career politicians out of this. Um, you know, I agree, but I don't... Okay, so everyone's freaking out over the infrastructure bill stuff. And, like, kind of rightfully so. We need to fight for ourselves. We need to lobby. But I think what people don't realize is that this crypto generation is growing up and getting larger. And a lot of people from this crypto generation are either going to become politicians or have power to vote in politicians, right? And I think what we're seeing now is a lot of you know, politicians maybe going out near the end of their terms, life, whatever it might be. I mean, some of these politicians are like 100 years old in Congress. Um, <laughs> I think they're going to just eventually be replaced with crypto-friendly people. Um, I know it's hard to imagine now because people think that, yeah, the state's against crypto and all that stuff. But if you kind of grow up in this, it, it takes a while for a paradigm shift to happen, right? Um, that's why I'm not too worried about long-term, you know, regulation of this stuff. But at the end of the day, right, it if we can be regulated, if, if DeFi can be shut down, then we're doing something wrong, right? right. There's some centralized right. point of failure. And that's kind of been my point on the infrastructure bill. Like, guys, okay, yes, it would suck to get some regulation put in against us, some tax reporting requirements. But if you can stop DeFi, we're doing something wrong. We're here to make sure that this stuff doesn't matter, right? Right. Yeah, all they're doing is they're just putting more and more onus upon the individual, but they're not putting more and more, more onus on Uniswap. And right. that's like, that's the important thing, right? Like so long as Uniswap and so long, the, so long as the actual code is untouched, then fine. Like we'll, we'll take, we'll concede whatever, so long yeah. as it's, you know, reasonable. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we have done ourselves a little bit of a dis disservice with um, heavy reliance on centralized stable coins, mm -hmm. USDT, USDC. Um, I do think there's a point of attack there for governments that we need to be careful with. I mean, most all DeFi protocols are very heavily reliant on this liquidity from centralized coins. I think that's right. where they would try to go after first if they could. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, now Coinbase is a public company. They they have a bunch of lobbyists themselves. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a long battle. But I, right. I do wish we would kind of reduce our reliance on that, if anything. Right. Yeah, uh, I do hope. And I'm sure Amin would agree with me is like Rye is actually the way that we stop giving so much power over to, to USDC. Right. Um, you, you said that you have a, a background in, in finance. And so I actually want to want to pick your brain on that. So I, my, uh, old, my old roommate and a bunch of my uh, friends from college, they were in like the business school part of the college, uh, part of the university. And I kind of like tease them and joke with them about like one of the reasons that I've done so well in crypto is that I, instead of majoring in business, I majored in psychology. So I didn't actually have to unlearn anything in order to learn crypto. But you actually majored in, in, in finance or have a, have a background in finance. So what was it like coming into crypto with a finance background? Do you think that was all like relevant or like what was that story like? Um, I would say, yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. I've always been kind of fascinated with finance. I was like, my dad set me up with an E-Trade account when I was 10 years old and like dial up mm -hmm. internet and gave me a little bit of money in there. And I was picking out some stocks that I liked. And I, so I've always been into trading and kind of my own personal financial stuff, which led me mm -hmm. to a finance degree. But, you know, the finance degree was more of a play and I've always been a numbers guy and into trading, but more just like it was going to be safety coming out of college into a job. But then mm -hmm. the financial crisis happened and I graduated in 09 and that wasn't really the case, but um, everything worked out. Yeah, I would say like graduated in 09 <laughs> with a finance degree. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> I got lucky enough to find a, a good internship and then a job right after somehow. But yeah, it wasn't the best timing 
in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, I would say like what helped me most was more that background I had in like trading and finance. I don't think my finance degree specifically has been too applicable um, in crypto, but what it has helped me with is like realizing how outdated the traditional finance world is, right? I, I worked at a bank for five years and like it was great experience, met great people, but man, just like the processes in place and the technology. What's funny is I discovered crypto while sitting at my desk working at in a, a bank. bank. Yeah, I ran yeah. across an article about Bitcoin in early 2013 as I was like bored at work scrolling through something. I think it was on Reddit. Um, and I instantly- What a, what a hilarious just like snapshot of, his, of, of just like, oh yeah, bored at work at a bank, <laughs> discovered Bitcoin because he was bored. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then it, you know, it fascinated me. I sent it to, well, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, I sent it to her and I'm like, oh yeah, we should probably like uh, kind of look into this thing led me to buying some. What's really funny. Wait, is, so you bought Bitcoin and, and saw that thought that Bitcoin was cool on your first exposure to it. Yeah. Well, you I almost say, never hear that. I, what, I didn't buy it that day, but sure, right. a few days <laughs> after I did a little research and created a Coinbase account and then went no, on. Most yeah. people like they get exposed to Bitcoin and then they're like, man, this is bullshit. Right. And then the price runs up and they're like, oh, I miss out on that. And then that's yeah. when they get in. You know, what's funny about me is like I, I get very upset if I miss out on something that I after the fact find to mm -hmm. be really awesome and so i was already mad that it had gone from a dollar to like two hundred dollars at the time so i'm like oh, man, <laughs> i already missed this but i'm gonna buy some anyways um so like uh, you know i felt like some of that was some nfts these days too but mm -hmm. um yeah anyways then i i found it and then i just kind of went down the reddit rabbit hole irc rabbit hole um and then what, what's really funny about the story to kind of tie it all back to my finance degree is like I worked in the treasury department and our treasurer at the time had this little like box in the kitchen you could put questions in. So I, I wrote a question mainly, I've, I've been a troll, I guess my whole life, but I put a <laughs> question in there and I said, what do you think of Bitcoin? Like it's been on this big run lately. And this is the treasurer of like a, a large regional bank, right? Mm -hmm. And he responded to it and he actually had a good response and like it kind of, he would respond over email to the whole group. And like, he, he was like, you know, the typical, it was probably in a bubble, blah, 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 but he had some good thoughts on it. And it kind of like sent this like Bitcoin, like exploration across the whole floor of the treasury <laughs> department at this bank. You know, I don't know if many people actually bought into it, but um, I gave, a, I would say at least 30 people exposure to Bitcoin at about $200. So hopefully some of them bought it. <laughs> Wow, that's hilarious! <laughs> Asking uh, who who is like that was the CEO of the company or, or who was who the question ended up at the treasurer, yeah, the, the treasurer. Yeah. So a asking some like leader of a of a financial organization their opinions on Bitcoin. <laughs> After it just ran up in price, right. you can repeat that story like every four years yeah, up exactly. until today. <laughs> That's what's funny. I mean, you know, some people, you know, I haven't worked there for a while. I still have some friends from there, but you know, some people think back, oh man, remember when that guy was talking about Bitcoin in 13? I really wish I bought it. <laughs> yeah, I really wish I, who was that guy? Like, oh, oh, you got to look him up. <laughs> right. Yeah, It's funny, right? Like early on, I, I mean, I know you were in ETH early too. And like just all these technologies early, like no one believes you really. Like I never really talked mm -hmm. about it early on. 
on because I didn't want to be the guy giving out like financial advice when something could go to zero. But like I had friends and family I would mention around. No one gave it a thought. And like during bear markets, no one talks to you. And then the second price starts going up and it's way past where it was one day. Everyone starts talking about it. (laughs) Right. No, first you're the crazy crypto person and then and then you're the poor, crazy crypto person. (laughs) And then you're like the rich, crazy crypto person. And but but people love you when you're at the third point. (laughs) Exactly. And you know, what's funny is it's happened like three times in Ethereum now with ETH and then DeFi tokens and now NFTs. They've all kind of gone through the same like, wait, no, you're crazy on ETH. No, you're crazy. DeFi is never going to happen. Oh, NFTs. Why would I buy a JPEG? And like all three have gone through the same cycle. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, people, people like assets and people like digital assets for some reason. Yeah. My, uh, during, uh, during 2018 and 19, when I was first getting into, into crypto, my mom's friends would always like in a con- very concerned fashion, ask me, ask my mom, like how I was doing. Uh, and, and like to this day, and then like crypto prices starting, started to go up and they would still ask her and it's very concerned. Is he still doing like that weird Bitcoin thing? Like how is he, is he, is he okay? And like, she would tell him, like, oh no, he's like, he's actually doing pretty well. Like his podcast is like going all right. Like he's actually doing making a name for himself in the industry. And then they still like, don't get it. They're so like, no, no, he should get out of that. Like that's gonna, that's gonna not, not gonna work out. It's funny, right? Like even to this day where you know, crypto Twitter's giant listening and followers of podcasts and YouTube channels, whatever. And like, you know, multi billions of dollars in market caps out there. It's funny how a lot of people in the mainstream still think it's like a fad or there's only like five people into it. It it really has been. I've talked a lot in the past. If if I'm not sure if these two worlds are going to collide or just run parallel forever. Um, I mean, they truly are just running parallel now. I feel like I live in an alternate reality. And I don't know, like when I go back to the traditional world and like people that don't know about crypto and stuff honestly i feel like kind of so disconnected from them because this is I such a different life <laughs> yeah, right? not gonna make it yeah. uh you're we were, earlier we were talking about just like how we're gonna get like good regulation and, and just good relationships with the nation state and like to some degree like as soon as like th- there's this phrase like science moves on one grave at a time like honestly once the boomers all die like it's gonna things are just gonna get a lot easier like no offense to the boomers like both my parents are boomers but like that's kind of what we need for this like digital world this digital financial system to either get more integrated into the into the rest of the world or just have started absorbing all the people and we can finally like leave that shit behind yeah totally i mean and that's kind of what i'm saying earlier too right with like eventually crypto native people will become the people making the laws right i I think you know, I'm even like a boomer, I guess, when it comes to crypto, right? There's a, there's a huge younger generation of anywhere from, I'm sure, all the way down to like 15 years old now up to, you know, 25 that's coming up too. Um, so it's going to take some time. But yeah, like your, your quote about science, I mean, this is just kind of how humanity works in general, right? A new idea, a new movement comes along and people are skeptical of it at first. Um, I mean, look at the internet, right? You can pull up tons of articles about the internet where people are laughing at it and making fun of it and like why would we ever use the internet the famous today show clip right all this stuff um and then stuff just takes over now what's interesting with crypto is like you're challenging a lot of you know institutions the state moneyness uh, and that's going to take longer than the internet to take things over right because those are bigger concepts they're bigger institutions to kind of have to uproot. Um, but eventually, it's, I mean, it's inevitable at this point. I don't even I don't even think like two years ago I would have said that it's inevitable. I still thought there was a path where 
Ethereum didn't win, but the, there's, I mean, it's, there's no doubt in my mind at this right. point. Like at a minimum, it might not just like totally usurp the current system, but at a, this parallel world, which is its own financial system, its own creator economy, all this stuff, that that's not being stopped at this point. Right. Yeah. At the very least, it maybe maybe it doesn't make the, like the the past system completely irrelevant, but it gives the option for people to make it irrelevant for them as as individuals. Right. Like if you want to just forget about the legacy world can. Uh, I mean, there's still some problems that we need to figure out. Like I still need to figure out how to pay my rent without using my Wells Fargo account. I don't, maybe that never happens. Um, but maybe that's just what like Wells Fargo is succumbed to. It's like, what, what is your purpose? Like you pay my rent. Right. Yeah. It, speaking of like Wells Fargo, man, going into like a branch, I had to go into the branch the oh, other God. day and send a wire. I, I can't believe like it, that still exists. And like mm. when, when you realize like, not that I want people to lose their jobs, but I think what people will realize is how much of this can be automated and fixed with a blockchain, right? Like, I'm going into a branch to talk to, like, two people to send money, like, and I have to fill out forms. Like, it's just crazy, right? Like, all mm -hmm. this stuff can be fixed with technology. I mean, even technology better than the banks have that's not blockchain, but I think what's eventually what will win the banks over are two things. I, the first is global access to liquidity, right? So right now you're like a bank, you kind of just have your branches. Like if you're not a Wells Fargo, you're probably a smaller regional bank. You can only tap into like one or two states, right? And that, that gives you a very small reach of a customer base. When these larger institutions realize, hey, we can access money anywhere in the world at any point on DeFi, that's going to be like, wow, we can make a lot more money, right? We have we can access a lot more liquidity. Um, and the second is cost saving. So once they can, you know, replace all these people they don't need because the technology is outdated. Right. Exactly. Yep. Um, all the paperwork stuff. Um, you know, these companies are looking to cut costs everywhere. So once it becomes kind of an accepted thing in the world by regulators and whatnot, those are the two things that are going to win the banks over. Yeah. And to some degree, like some of the processes that banks have are just like, uh, they, we just do them just because we do them, right? Like the reason yeah. why you have to go into a bank is like historically is because the bank would actually know who you were, right? Yeah. That's not like no bank knows who anyone is anymore. Like you just show your ID and then like, oh yeah, the picture matches the face. That is you signing a transaction. Like does your ID match your face? Like, oh yeah, okay. Does the private key align with the, uh, with the public address? Like, yes, yes, it does. Yeah. Um, and like uh, there, there, was, there was one time I needed to send a wire transfer that was over, over the limit and I couldn't do it for my computer. So I had to go into a bank, but I was in a situation I didn't have enough time to go into a bank. And so I called the bank up to see if I could do it over the phone and like, no, the only way that we let you do this is we send you like a, a PGP like encryption device. And I'm like, that's just a fucking hardware wallet. You're going to send me a hardware wallet so I can make a transfer out of Wells Fargo. Like it's, it's just like so obvious that they are like trying to incrementally like do the same things that crypto does an order of magnitude better and did that like 10 years ago. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think your point about personal relationships is an interesting one. I mean, you used to go into a bank and they knew you, like you said, and mm -hmm. like that, that's nice, right? Like these people have your money, they're dealing with your money. Like that, that's something that most people would want. That's gone now for multiple reasons that, you know, the banks have combined merged and gotten too big for that and all this stuff. But I think one interesting thing that DeFi has is this like connection and relationship to team members. And that kind of happens through discord channels and Twitter. 
you kind of feel at any point now it's a little easier for us to say we're kind of prominent in the space and have been around a while and a little well, more well known so maybe for people newer to space they don't quite feel this as much but it feels like at any point you could hop on and talk to someone from the team and that, that's almost right. like being able to hop on and talk to a bank ceo or, or jeff support, bezos right. with an amazon order right now how this scales long term will be interesting but i think that's one of the core things about DeFi right now yeah, and that definitely makes people feel a little bit more like trusting in this like weird code thing that's like ruling our financial lives. But like, oh yeah, no, there's that. And like to some degree, it's not necessarily even the team. It can actually just be the community that's in there too, right? right? And for yeah. some reason, like, communities love to answer questions and be customer support. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. We're very like collaborative and social of environment. Totally. Hey, Bankless Nation, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. In the second half of the show, we talk about uh, what I've been calling Ethereum brain and what happens to the person when they have just overwhelming amounts of Ethereum and crypto just going around in their lives and how Eric has uh, has managed, you know, Ethereum brain and what he does about it to like retain his grip on humanity. We also talk about uh, Bitcoin maximalism a little bit and talking about how Bitcoin maximalism is a coping mechanism for coming to terms with a protocol that has never upgraded. And we also talk about uh, DeFi tokens and our mutual desire to see tokens distribute cash flows to holders, as well as the long-term outlook of yield in DeFi. We also talk about some golf. We talk about some electric cars and some other grab bag subjects. So I hope you're gonna enjoy the second half of the conversation. Before we get there though, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the Bankless Nation already have their Ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? 
Go to ledger.com, grab your ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your dApps all in one place. I, I want to actually go back to like the pre-Ethereum era uh, of, of your crypto life. When you were focused on Bitcoin, because there was only Bitcoin to focus on, like, were, was your imagination as like grandiose as like Ethereum is now? Or like, what did you think like the future prospects of Bitcoin would be at that time? Because there wasn't Bitcoin maximalism back then, right? No, yeah, that's what's interesting. It didn't really exist. It was still like this. It, and when I entered in like 13, it felt more like the Ethereum community does now to me. Um, I, what first just kind of attracted me was okay, this concept of a digital currency, a digital money. And like I mentioned, I have like a trading background and I, I like just getting in on new trends. And so that, that's actually what captured me first and why I kind of instantly went to like these IRC channels, right, of, of trading. But what was interesting is most people then in like these, we, we weren't just talking about like price and trading, right? People were talking about these larger visions of kind of what we're talking about right now. Like how can Bitcoin usurp the traditional finance system and talking about concepts that we're talking about on Ethereum now. So it's not like the traditional or the Bitcoin maximalist following that we're used to at this point. Um, and it's what's really funny is most of the people in those chats when uh, Vitalik pitched at, um, or didn't really pitch, but gave the talk about Ethereum at Bitcoin Miami, most of those people bought into ETH because that's kind of the vision that they had seen, right? So I think when I first saw Bitcoin, just it was such a new concept to me. I didn't really know where it would go. I don't think I really had that vision until we started working on EtherX, which was like end of 14, I believe. Uh, tried to launch it beginning of 15. And I mean, I had such conviction in Ethereum. Like not one day, like I said earlier, like I had some days where I'm not sure if Ethereum's gonna like be this huge like takeover thing, but I've never one day thought Ethereum wouldn't be like a success on its own, right? Like this idea of code running smart contracts running I, I don't know why it clicked with me so much because i before it i had never thought of it right um but the second i saw this i'm just like so bitcoin kind of like led me into the rabbit hole and got me thinking about this digital money idea and what could be done with like a trustless ledger and all that stuff um you know and having worked in like a treasury department which is kind of like the heart of a bank um i kind of like saw how ledgers worked at a bank and then like the, you know they're so antiquated so that kind of like trapped me in um but really the second i saw that talk about ethereum i i've never looked back but i don't know what <laughs> i don't know why it captured me so much to this day to be honest but i think it just clicks with me so much and i'm glad it did because it's obviously paid off um but yeah that's kind of you know my bitcoin to ethereum journey see this is also always why i call like bitcoin is just like a massive proof of concept like it was the conversation starter and like the, it got start conversations around like digital identity and trustless peer to peer like transactions and swaps and you know to some degree like even colored coins was like an early version of like the ERC20 token uh, and we're talking about how like your bitcoin address is like your uh, your your passport into like the digital nation state like bitcoiners were talking about like what i call like the bankless nation before ethereum was like even in existence um, and to, uh, I want to get your opinion on this take. Bitcoin maximalism wasn't really a thing in the way that it is now until like roughly around the time that Vitalik coined it, right? Like first Bitcoin was Bitcoin and Bitcoiners were Bitcoiners and they had all these fantastic ideas about a trustless nation state free future with no regulation and like all these, all these possibilities with Bitcoin. And then, and then this like Bitcoin maximalism 
switch happened where like Bitcoiners subconsciously realize that the only thing you can do on Bitcoin is have Bitcoins and like all these grandiose ideas are going to actually happen elsewhere. And a decent amount of like Bitcoiners are just like in denial about that. And so like they created Bitcoin maximalism to like cope with that fact. That's kind of how that's my interpretation of history. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It was a defense mechanism, I think. So going back to you mentioned colored coins like that. I think that's one of the most interesting things because I think that's where the pivot really happened. So it, back in like 13, when I discovered Bitcoin, people were talking about colored coins. They were talking about scaling. Um, these were big topics in the space and like color coins excited people because it was like this idea of tokens. And I remember people even talking about like stable coins, right? Like getting like USDT peg or USD peg tokens through color coins and all this stuff. So there was this vision and when Ethereum came along, you know, the stories, of course, are Vitalik really wanted to build Ethereum on top of Bitcoin and kind of got shut down on that idea and stuff. Um, so that kind of created the initial rift, I would say. Um, yeah. And then once Ethereum took off, I think it started taking these ideas and it was more of a defense mechanism and obviously a little bit of saltiness, right? Like any Bitcoiner could have bought into the Ethereum presale. I mean, they accepted Bitcoin, right? Um, so... I think once they saw those ideas going away and realizing that they weren't going to happen on Bitcoin, because not because at that point, like now nothing's going to happen on Bitcoin, let's be honest, because like the maximalism, the minimalist approach has taken over. But I think even right when Ethereum launched, it still had a chance, but it was going to just be more cumbersome now to do it on right. Bitcoin. There was no reason. Um, and it became a defense mechanism because it's like, OK, we had these bigger ideas. We wanted to do them. Now we're not going to do them. And I'll, look, I'll give them a little credit, like backing into the digital gold store value narrative has paid off for Bitcoin. It's an easily translatable thing to the mainstream. I think people buy into it. That's why Bitcoin's at, what, $49,000 today. Um, but long term, it's not the winning narrative, right? Ethereum's narrative is much stronger, but it's going to take a little bit longer for people to understand it. Um, you know, Bitcoin's not going anywhere, but um, they had to kind of pick this narrative, right? Because there wasn't going to be another one. <laughs> right. And to, in my mind, picking the narrative of like digital gold, you're adding a futuristic word upon a an ancient word. It's like, hey, there's this ancient thing and we're going to make it futuristic again. But like the reason why Ethereum's narrative is so complex is because there is no ancient corollary to Ethereum. It's purely, it's digital layered on top of digital, right? Like it's only sci-fi. And that's why, that's where so many people get confused and skeptical about what Ethereum is. But like when you kind of like suspend your disbelief, like, oh yeah, no, this is like the most sci-fi thing that we can ever think of. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still hard to explain to people. I mean, I've been in the space seven years now on Ethereum and if people ask me like to explain it, I still struggle, right? <laughs> like it's tough to do, like, because there are so many things happening and so many visions, but yeah, I mean the, the digital gold thing, it's like really what Bitcoin is saying at this point is we're scarce. There's a scarce amount of these things. You should collect them. Right. And scarcity goes back a long time. Now for Bitcoin, what's interesting is I don't think the 21 million cap is viable. So at some point we'll, we'll be long gone probably, but at some point this scarce narrative is going to kind of blow up a bit. Um, yeah. And that'll be interesting to see. I, what I find really interesting is like, uh, okay, so here's, here's a good prompt. Are, are crypto punks a better store of value than Bitcoin long-term? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because they don't have to secure secure themselves. Right, exactly. And there's never like there might be more Bitcoin mines uh, because they need to secure mm -hmm. the network. There'll never be more punks mines. And right. what's funny is like 
some people listening to this may be laughing. Oh, it's ridiculous to compare CryptoPunks to Bitcoin. But really what Bitcoin's entire pitch is behind mm-hmm. the digital gold pitch is, hey, there's only 21 million of these. You should own right. one. Right. CryptoPunks is the exact same pitch. And CryptoPunks has cool art right. behind it and has some traits. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, it triggers the FOMO. There's like a, a status symbol behind it. Yeah. Like you get to say that you got in early. Like it's all the same things. Yeah. Um, the only difference is one's fungible and one's non-fungible. Uh, I, I don't think Bitcoin will have to mint more Bitcoins. I don't think Bitcoin will ever hard fork. I think it'll just like get reorged over and over and over again and, until like it turns into like where something like BSV is now where like exchanges just delist it because like they can't keep on dealing dealing with the reorgs. That seems like the that's like the the hands off like we we're just going to send this thing off into the ether and then and this is like the inevitable outcome to it because like bitcoiners are already committed to like never ever hard forking. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's like if they don't and fees aren't high enough at that point, like you said, it'll be easily attackable. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but even at that point, we're going to be so far down the road, like with the whole ETH deflationary mm-hmm. ultrasound money thing. Like, yeah, is it even going to be worth them to fork it and add it? Because that is their only narrative left. Right. And if they remove right. that, what's the point? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they, they talk about uh, Bitcoiners say like if. Uh, something hard forks out of Bitcoin, then it's not Bitcoin anymore. Right. Right. Like they've they've committed to like whatever this Bitcoin thing is, and they will ride that thing into the sunset <laughs> and crash and burn along the way. In my opinion. Right. Yeah, we might see it sooner than later. I mean, we might see it within three happenings. I think. Um, mm-hmm. So that's another twelve years or so. Right. Yeah. You you said we were going to be long gone by then. No, I think I think it's going to be within yeah three or four happenings. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so Eric, you've, you've been, when, did, when was the moment you were like, quote unquote, like full-time crypto, as in like it consumed eight to 10 hours of your life at least? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I would say it was around, well, I didn't f- go full-time working in crypto. So about two years ago, right after we started Ethub into the ether, and then I got a job at Gnosis. That's when I really left mm-hmm. the tra- traditional world behind. Um, but I would say since... 15 even though i had a traditional job i was probably on the side spending way too much time on crypto right like either Mm -hmm. on my phone or when i would get home spend the entire evening in the space Mm so what's you know what's interesting though is like i always wanted it was still speculative like even when eth did its first like run up to like a thousand or whatever you just didn't know like if it was going to go back so i always wanted like a steady salary for the family on the side right Right. and not just totally yolo it into so that was that was a very fun thing to finally hop over to gnosis and i'm always thankful for the opportunity they gave me because that was like okay now i'm full-time eth but i would say i've been pretty much entirely down the rabbit hole since about the time we tried to launch etherx which was like 15 or so so it's been like six years now and i at this point it's getting too hard for me to keep up i think what we're seeing is like the deep we're, we're seeing like not silos but like different ecosystems pop out within ethereum um mm-hmm. we're getting the DeFi ecosystem the nft ecosystem i mean keeping up with both is nearly impossible at this point i, I just almost can't do it <laughs> right and, and like even when you're at like a, a legacy job like in your mind is still thinking about crypto. Like I kind of still consider that like full-time crypto. If like, if that's where your brain is all of the time, then like that's kind of where you are. And so then, then you started ETH hub because we needed to fight the Bitcoiner FUD. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Got got a job at at Gnosis. So you're doing the ETH hub podcast, which like in in the past had like three episodes a week, sometimes at at minimum. Uh, And then you're also doing your Gnosis job. Like, 
how how did you deal with that like i i kind of have called uh, it, gotten this thing that i'm been calling like ethereum brain yeah. as in just like oh you wake up and think about ethereum you, you're thinking about ethereum all day you're doing ethereum things like ha have you noticed ethereum brain have you gotten ethereum brain totally yeah i got largely burnt out probably like well first of all you can see these gray hairs here and then the beard yeah. i don't know if that's more are those ethereum or, gray hairs yeah, or are think, those just like I aging they gray are hairs. ethereum gray hairs <laughs> um, I, I definitely reached a point where i got burnt out and just one day it's more just like constantly looking at screens on your phone and one day i just said i gotta like drop off twitter and discord for like a few weeks right because this is yeah, actually you and i have talked about this a little bit offline but the difference to me and working and loving the Ethereum space versus the traditional world is most people work their traditional job, you know, eight to five, they come home, they totally disconnect, right? Maybe you have some right. friends from work, but you're not then going home really. I wasn't going home and reading about treasury departments and treasury functions, right? Like I wasn't passionate about it. The difference in Ethereum, like you and I and, and many others is we work in it, we invest in it. All of our friends are in it. All of the conferences and travel we do are in it. And it just become it does become overwhelming. And I recently have tried to start stepping back at times. Like I'll take breaks from Twitter. Um, we scaled back the ETHUB podcast a little bit. I mean, I recently had a, a baby girl too. So that's obviously taken over life priorities. But I do think it's such an interesting thing. And it's a bit... It's healthy. It's very healthy to work in something you're very passionate about. I'm very thankful for that. And like not many people can say that, but I do think there's an unhealthy element to not being able to disconnect. And it's the 24 seven nature of things. People across the world, the price is always trading. Everything's always on. Um, I think it'll hit us all a little bit. It has me, um, but I would just suggest stepping back, taking a break, go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks if you can do something like that and leave your phone at home. Yeah, that I, I remember as soon as like towards the end of 2020 or no, towards, at the beginning of 2020, right after the Mar March crash and things like really accelerated right after the March crash, like it started like April, April and May, you kind of got the tremors of like DeFi, DeFi summer and like DeFi summer was such a just like whiplash of, you know, the 2018, 2019, early 2020 bear market was like. It was just like people really got to know each other. I got to know you. I got to know Anthony. I got to know like DC. Uh, and it was, like, it was just like a very calm, peaceful environment. Like we're just like taking this one, the one news event of like the month, which is like this Uniswap thing. And we're all like parsing it apart together collectively on Twitter. Like the only crypto Twitter conversation was Uniswap for like three weeks because we all invented this crazy new paradigm that solves all this Ether Delta thing. And then like we get smacked by... DeFi summer like 2020 and like a bull market and a bunch of new entrants and all of a sudden just like we were all so hungry for like crypto innovation and crypto content and crypto stuff that like we forgot to learn how to like tune things out and so then and then DeFi summer comes and like all of the things that we were longing for in like 2019 and 2020 all came and hit us all at once and so we're all like primed to consume literally everything and and the where like you know things could ethereum could only saturate your life like you know five to eight hours a day all of a sudden it goes to like well you could actually spend like all 24 hours a day like consuming ethereum stuff totally i mean it's it's funny right like i don't work a traditional nine to five job anymore i i kind of do my own investing and in, in startups kind of like angel investing 
But I, so people are like, oh, so you don't work? And I'm, I just kind of laugh. Like, yeah, I, I do <laughs> still, like I still work. Like I'm managing yield farms. I'm trying to find new investment opportunities. I'm doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep up with the news, Twitter, Discord. Like that's still a job, but it's almost like a new paradigm job, right? Mm-hmm. Like in this Ethereum space, we found so many different ways to like make money and connect with people um, that like you don't feel like you're really working, but you still are working right like i'm not just sitting on a lounge chair all day like taking in Mm -hmm. the sun um but yeah it's long term it'll be interesting to watch like how people do get burnt out and the response to that because it's still hard to step away because you feel like you're missing something right like oh man and so i had finally gotten a point like around when my daughter was born where like my farms were on auto control like i wasn't really like moving funds around and chasing yields and like price had kind of calmed down a little bit and then all of a sudden the nfts blew up and i'm like yeah are you fucking kidding me <laughs> like <laughs> now i have to spend you know more time tracking nfts and i don't want to miss out on some opportunities here and i want to understand did you feel obligated for some reason like I did, oh I, nfts are a thing like now i do this this is what i do now i did i felt obligated and part of it's because like what i told you earlier like i i feel like if i missed out on something that I end up liking and I had a big price appreciation. I'm just going to hate myself. So I had to dive in and like understand like all these drops and the generative art stuff. And like, I've been a crypto punk guy since day one. I was on there claiming um, when they were going out for free, but that's kind of been the only NFT. I didn't go down like the crypto kitties thing. And I've kind of just held my punks and, you know, not done much with them. Um, but I had to like reteach myself this. And now it's like, okay, I just added more work to my job. Now it's right. Ethereum, DeFi and NFTs. Right. Yeah. And it kind of seems like there's just like always something like on the horizon. Right. Right. So like when you've, when you've stepped back, like if from the perspective of like stepping back from Ethereum as like a skill, like what advice do you have? Yeah. So, okay. This is one of the more interesting things I've personally run into lately is, you know, a, a decent amount of us, I guess we could say, have made it or will make it with our investments and whether it's ETH, DeFi, NFTs or whatever. And like we work in this space that we might get burnt out on. What I, what I kind of struggle with is when I step back, I've become so enamored and so into Ethereum, the space, like I'm not really sure what to do. Like I always have to be working towards something, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I like to golf, I have hobbies outside, but like I can't fully leave the Ethereum space. So like right. what I would say for people, it's almost like trying to quit something cold Turkey, right? Whether it's like drinking or smoking or like eating something bad. Um, what I've realized is don't just give it all up at once, right? Like keep your favorite discord server, give up Twitter and step away from everything else. Um, because honestly, you kind of feel a little bit lost, which is weird for me to say, like it sounds strange, but you, all of a sudden you're like, wait, what am I waking up for? What am I like trying to accomplish? And that's like, honestly, why I had to go down the NFT hole. It's like, I wanted something new to bite on. Like, I feel like I had kind of accomplished the East side and the DeFi side. And now like what's next. Um, so I think that's why it keeps bringing people back to though, to be honest. It, it reminds me of the metaphor of like carrying the, the, I don't know what came up with, uh, the, the ring from Lord of the Rings, like Frodo oh, yeah. carrying the ring around his neck. It's like yeah. he carried it for too long and like now he can't get rid of it. Like it's not on his body anymore, but like it's still burned into his soul. Like totally. w- once, once you like consume enough of, of Ethereum, like you can think of it as a drug. Like you actually can't like leave. Like yeah. it's, it's got you and it, and it's, and it traps you. And then, and, and that like Ethereum was like my, 
uh, I, I haven't talked about this too much, but like before I got into Ethereum, um, before I got into crypto, uh, I got broken up with with a girl that I thought I was going to marry, yeah. and Ethereum like filled that void for me. It's like, oh, I like this is super fucking entertaining. I can like forget about like like just like being really bummed about life, and I can I can like just think about Ethereum all the time. Yeah. And like you know, four years later, I'm like, okay, like no, you can't marry Ethereum, David. <laughs> like, you, you need to, like, step back. Right. And, like, I, I, and that's why I, like, straight up moved to San Diego. Like, yeah. I needed to, like, step myself out of, like, Seattle and, and just where, where I was, like, raised and I had to get, put myself into, like, a new environment. Yeah. Uh, and, and, like, if, if you're, like, there's this thing called like, state-dependent learning. Uh, if you, you, like, I haven't, like, lived in San Diego before, so it's, like, trying to welcome myself, like, into a new life and give myself, like, permission to like stop having so much like ethereum brain totally yeah no i mean i moved too which is funny like i feel like a lot of people moved and that was a way to like kind of get out and escape mm -hmm. a little bit but i mean the whole like marrying ethereum thing is a funny metaphor if you think about it like i i also think like why some of us have such a hard time stepping away is we kind of like think of ethereum as our baby a little bit right like mm -hmm. you mentioned starting ethub like why did we start ethub well because bitcoin maximalists were spreading fun narratives and smacking eth down all the time and we needed to fight for it right, right. and now ethereum's like grown up and come out of that yeah. and it has its own narratives and those things don't matter anymore but a lot of us have helped shape where ethereum is today right like even down to 1559 right like i co-authored it you were heavily involved in like helping people understand it like these are big things that shaped the future mm -hmm. of ethereum and it's hard to like, just like, no one wants right. to abandon their baby, right? So like, right. it's hard to fully step away. And I, I don't think I would ever fully step away. I think it's just going to be too impossible. But it's kind of like, like, where do we go after this stage of Ethereum where it grows up? Like, what is our next role, right? What does that look like? Because there's always going to be like younger, more eager people coming up that want to do, I mean, you're doing five podcasts a week or whatever. <laughs> like that's probably not going to, you're going to get burnt out eventually, yeah, right? Totally. But like, yeah. I feel like we're all going to always be in this space and just kind of do different things. Yeah. And like you said, this space is splitting into like the NFT cohort, the DeFi cohort, and there's going to be more cohorts into the future. Um, and like keeping up with all of them is going to be absolutely insane. But maybe there's just like maybe the people kind of come into Ethereum at their own specific like generation. So there's just going to be like generational cohorts of Ethereum that all kind of like go through their own just like, you know, the learning journey of crypto and then like finding their place in, in, in Ethereum. That's right. that's right for them. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest transformations I've seen too. Like early Ethereum, it was only a space for devs, right? Mm -hmm. And like no one wanted to see like speculators or traders. Like the, the Ethereum Reddit literally doesn't allow price talks still to this day. Um, yeah. And you felt like you didn't have a place. It's crazy how much that's changed, right? It's a place for anybody now. Like you don't need mm -hmm. a finance background. You don't need a trading background. You don't need a coding background. Um, you know, this was even still a problem, I would say, back in early 18 even. There was like this pretentiousness of oh if you're not a dev you don't have a spot in the space and man has that changed right. fast right god that that was going through my brain like endlessly in 2017 it's like oh this crypto stuff is super cool i guess i'm just gonna watch it grow in front of my eyes for the rest of my life because i won't be able to actually like do anything because i don't right. know how to code yeah no know? it's crazy how much that's changed right absolutely how's it how's uh since you've practiced stepping back from ethereum how's your golf game gone well not great because it's not very easy <laughs> to golf with a baby. Um, I'm right, hoping right, right. to get out here soon. It's 
been solid, but it's not where I want it to be. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> before I play with you, I need to get a lot better so I can kick your ass real good. Oh, I am not good at golf <laughs> at all. I'm very much one of those people where like I, I hate putting first off. Yeah. But like I know that if I stop or if I start give it, giving a fuck about golf, then like I'm actually getting to start and go out and practice. I've never practiced golf. I only play. Yeah, I yeah. never practice, only play. Which is a tough sport to do that. Yeah, what's funny is like I feel like golf's a great sport for people into Ethereum. Like I feel like if you're looking for a hobby or something new and you haven't tried golfing and you're super into Ethereum, try golf because just like Ethereum, you can never perfect it and there's always something new to learn, be frustrated by, mm-hmm. get happy about. Like there's a lot of similarities. So, I, oh god. I, we need an Ethereum <laughs> golf outing. <laughs> <laughs> Ethereum golf golf retreat. Oh god. So, uh how's your Porsche? <laughs> it's it's nice yeah yeah it it fits golf clubs which is good is that yeah basically all you needed to (laughs) i got just recently got a a polestar which is not a porsche but it's definitely an electric car that goes really really fast and like i keep having to remind myself that like okay just because you have a really fast electric car doesn't mean you get to go like 100 miles an hour down the the san diego highway it's dangerous the fast electric cars man you're going like 100 and you don't realize it it's crazy right Uh i've only owned one electric car i'm never going back i don't think like it's just no it's too great the experience is awesome just being able to plug it in like i know where the environmental impact right now is we have the production and all that. So it's a mm-hmm. bit minimal, but I do feel right. better about myself driving it around. That's for sure. Yeah. No, like sometimes like, uh, there's been times where I have friends all the way up in LA and like a little bit, maybe in like South Anaheim or orange or something. And just like, if I ever want to go out there, like I actually don't have like the weight of like consuming gas to go do that. It's like, Oh yeah, yeah. this is, it's a lot more casual. Now that I don't have to fill up my gas tank with gasoline. It's like, nice. Oh, I'll just pl- plug it in later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we're finally seeing uh, the, electric car revolution happened i feel like a lot like we're getting nice looking electric cars now which i never knew like before why they made them look so horrible um but i think we're finally the 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 porsche taycan is like one of the best looking cars i think that's out there they finally realized like let's not make this look like an electric car let's just make it look like a porsche (laughs) like i don't know why these car companies didn't do that Dude, I uh, I test drove that car uh, a few a few months ago, and you, you told me to do the like the stomp on the brake yeah. and then hit the gas and do the launch. Oh my god, man! <laughs> like like ugh, it, it just puts your stomach into like a different dimension. It feels like you know those roller coasters that launch you like zero to mm-hmm. sixty mm-hmm. or whatever. It feels exactly mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And there was, and I was being an absolute idiot on the test drive, definitely going over a hundred and, uh, coming, coming up behind a guy and a guy like uh, turned on, like didn't turn on his blinkers and came into my lane. So I had to swerve <laughs> and the handle, I swerved at a, like a hundred plus miles an hour and the handling on that thing just like it cradled it. It yeah, cradled exactly. the, the swerve and just put me exactly where I needed to go. I feel like yeah. if I did that on any like normal car, I would have just like spun out and died. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If you haven't drove the Porsche t- I can go test drive it. Porsche is going to see a spike of a bunch of test drives next week. Now that we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely recommend it. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's been, it's been fun. Uh, have, have you seen what a, a Pulsar looks like? Uh, I looked it up the other day. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. what's the deal? Are they like in product? They're easy to get in production. You already got it. Yeah. 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 So like uh, I was going back and forth between a, a Polestar and a Tesla, just like the, the more affordable versions of, of, of an electric car. I didn't, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I couldn't get myself to, to dish out the cost of the cost of a take can. It's just like um, one JPEG, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> depending on the JPEG. Um, but uh, t- Tesla is, you can't get a Tesla. Like they're all, yeah. you, you can't get one until 2022. Uh, and also Polestar is a derivative off of Volvo. Like mm-hmm. they used to, be, Polestar used to be um, uh, uh, Volvo's like Skunk Works, like their like performance uh, division. And then they just spun out, made the Polestar one, which is like the supreme luxury uh, car for like 150,000. It's a hybrid uh, gasoline electric car. And then they made the Polestar 2, which is like the affordable affordable version. Yeah. Uh, but like since it's like, my, for some reason, uh, Volvos have always been in my family. Um, my dad and his dad had matching uh, 1972 Volvos, uh, <laughs> which which he still has. Uh, and then my first car out of college was a Volvo. So then I decided like, oh, yeah, Polestar, yeah. Clo- close enough. Some tie to it, close right? Enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. That's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Eric, since as a uh, host of a podcast, uh, usually sometimes hosts don't get to say everything that they get to say because they're always talking to guests. Is there any subject matter that you have never been able to talk about? That you've always wanted to, curious, like to have the floor on. Hmm, that's an interesting one. What haven't I been fully honest about? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. I, I've talked about this a little bit, I guess. This is still Ethereum related, of course, but I've been a little bit disappointed in the governance tokens and like mm. where we haven't evolved like at all. So when governance tokens came out, the pitch was, hey, you can have a, you know, if you own this, you'll probably own a portion of our protocol fee going forward, right? And like when I've had guests on, I've brought this up a little bit, but I'm not like, the, the, the response from most DeFi founders is, oh, that's in the token holder's hands, right? Like, right. I love Robert Leshner, but like, if you listen to my episode with him, like the entire time, oh, comp token holders, oh, which makes sense, right? Like for legal, reasons, yeah. <laughs> for legal reasons and all this. Um, but I'm a little disappointed in the advancement of that. Like, I think Sushi is kind of one of the only protocols that's doing any revenue take to token holders. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that we would come further than just pure speculation for the value on these things. So I think decentralized government, Vitalik put out a good piece about token voting the other day. I think we're kind of just like shooing some of these problems under the rug. We saw like a weird Uniswap vote happen the other day where some team tried to get like 25 million. It took like the last second for like a Twitter outrage to happen for it to get shut down. Um, Did that actually end up, because when I, last I looked at it, it actually uh, had more yes votes than no votes after it got flipped with more no votes after people like realize what was going on. So I haven't tracked actually it today. Up going through? I haven't okay. tracked it today. So that could be the case. There were all kinds of weird things. Like the UI was broken, like no votes were going to yes votes and stuff. It was a mess. Um, but I, I'm a little disappointed in the progress of governance tokens. Now, I will say most of this stuff and fixing and innovation happens in bear markets. I think people are just distracted right now. Um, but man, we're missing like, such a good long-term value narrative for DeFi tokens if they're actually paying a part of the protocol revenue to token holders, mm-hmm. right? That kind of gives a nice little like feedback loop. So if I had to pick a topic where I think pe- people in the ecosystem are kind of like ignoring or not paying enough attention to, I think it would be that. Uh, so yeah, that vote did end with the grants uh, grant getting approved. Oh, it did? Yep. <laughs> Was yeah. that today? Uh, earlier today, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. So that's kind of interesting. The I, I I have said that like it would be nice to not just emulate like the uh, greater fool's valuation of like the traditional stock market is like oh we got the uni token the comp token and like oh governance like buy the token but and actually like morph that into actual like analysis uh, analysis of on chain cash flows. Yeah. But one thing in, in in like 
there are certain paradigms that Ethereum completely breaks and, and re renews. And then there are certain uh, other paradigms that like it absolutely doesn't, right? And like, well, if you start to send, uh, spend cash flows, then like you actually, like the, you can't spend them on like development and, and you know, uh, uh, innovation into the protocol, right? So like maybe it is actually like too soon. There, yeah. there, I do think there is room for that to be like a paradigm that Ethereum doesn't actually fix. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like where this goes, like how it relates to traditional valuation is still to be known. And there's going to be like a lot of tweaking of this. Right. And I think even like we could go way further where it's like incentivize people more to not just farm and dump the token. Like if you hold it right. longer, you get some kind of incentive. There's all kinds of things that. But isn't that just a greater fools like Ponzi game thing too? Cause that just turns into a Ponzi game. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, this is leading to the ultimate conversation, right? Where I haven't brought up too much on the podcast, but um, what's like the end game for DeFi once incentives run out, right? Like what, mm. what do yields start to look like? Do users just drop off? Um, you know, everyone in, in this space touts these super high yields, but the reality is they're not long-term sustainable, right? Like the, the token. So there's two aspects to a lot of these yield farms, right? Or these DeFi protocols. There's the, the core rate, which say like on an Aave or compound, that rate is driven if you're lending, that's driven by borrowing demand, right? So if there's a huge spike in borrowing demand for USDC, your interest rate's gonna go up. Um, now that can be muted down if more deposits come in to the, to the lending side. And then the second part is a lot of protocols are giving away their own token. Now, they're probably not gonna give away their token forever. Although I would debate that like the supply cap meme isn't really necessary for DeFi protocols. So we might see right. that lifted and kept. Um, but once say the um, subsidy of the coin, like in comps case are given away at comp on top of the interest rate, once that dries up and you get a lot of cash that starts to come into DeFi over time because it becomes easier. If rates start to settle down to like traditional finance levels, what like what's the strong narrative for DeFi at that point beyond just trustless holding of your own wealth or your own money or whatever, right? Um, so I'm curious to see how that shakes out. I mean, if we do settle down to like traditional <laughs> finance levels, like to some degree that might just signal that like it, a, a, it got actually adopted or B, people might actually feel more secure about like entering into that market and like keep keeping that. Cause like aside from how like magical and wonderful and fantastic and efficient DeFi is like, there's plenty of other reasons to adopt Ethereum infrastructure totally. rather than your, your traditional banking infrastructure. Totally. Yeah. I think that's where we will go. Um, but I don't know if people realize that these rates are going to eventually get arbed down to traditional right. rates, right? There's nothing really magical. The magic right now is it's, it's harder to get into Ethereum, so the rates are higher, and there's more speculation happening. But the second, you know, large funds, hedge funds, banks can put in their deposits, those rates are going to get crushed down, and they're going to be pretty equal to the traditional world. So I think people should expect that going forward. We're starting to see it a little bit. Like last year, comp, you could earn 8 to 10% pretty easily. Um, these right. days, it's more like 3 um, just on the core rate, not the comp subsidy right. on top, but yeah. Right. But DeFi has also been like pretty quiet, right? Like as soon yes. as like trading activity picks up, like yields, yields pick up. Yeah. Like my, my gut is that rates will always be at, at least marginally higher than traditional rates uh, on their floor at yeah. the very least. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. There will be a spread for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And plus if like, if these things do get arbed down, they're just the market itself is going to be like insanely liquid uh, and also, if if like a bunch of like traditional money comes in to arb that down, it's gonna be really bullish for ether. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and what's interesting is I I don't put anything in um, 
DeFi that's not insured through Nexus Mutual. Mm. Um, mm. So it becomes interesting for me when rate, so it, it costs like 2.4% or whatever to insure on most protocol, most safe protocols through Nexus. If rates start creeping down towards that, it becomes a net negative for me, right? Yield wise. So I think the whole insurance thing needs to be figured out a little bit better long-term as well. And I know there's a lot of teams working on it, of course, Nexus too, um, right. but more streamlined, like the ideas of I'm only insured when I'm actually in the protocol um, and rates need to get a little bit more competitive there. Mm -hmm. So do you micromanage that insurance or like if things like go negative, do you just like, eh, I'm just going to like not bother and like two days later it'll be positive again? Yeah, I do. I do manage it. It kind of sucks, right? Like they, they do like 30, 90 or 180 days. I always do 30 because if like the rates were to tank or whatever, I don't want to be right. net negative for longer. Um, but yeah, then you got to like in your calendar, remember when your compound cover is expiring and right. you got to go re-up it. And like sometimes I'll pull uh, there, some... There's the work you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a full time job i know there's been uh, what was it like armor like armor fire someone was doing where like you would only be covered if you were in the protocol like so if you took your funds mm -hmm. out and then that cuts down your cost too um there's a lot of tweaks and improvements i would like to see where protocols offer an insurance native option right so like right. this stuff's baked into say ave and it's like do you right. want an insured deposit you get two percent less or do you not um that would be so much easier uh. Yeah, that, that seems to be like the logical conclusion of where that would go. Yeah, yeah, I think it has to. All right, Eric. Well, I think we could wrap it up there. Cool. Yeah, it's thanks, been fun. Thanks, thanks for coming on uh, Layer Zero and let me uh, pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate inviting me. I like, I like this format, so I'll definitely be mm -hmm. tuning in to others too because I think it allows a nice flow of conversation. Uh, after you, I have uh, Justin Drake. So oh, he's nice. he, you're, you're episode number two, and he's episode number three. That's a good uh, one. Dimitri Buterin is episode number one, and he comes mm -hmm. out. We're recording this on Friday. He comes out on Tuesday. Listeners will he be hearing this a week from Tuesday. Awesome. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks, Thanks man. Yep. Good conversation. Cheers. Bye.